1: and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their articles in the latest issue. This week, we've got another set of five brilliant writers. First up, we'll have Harry Mount, the editor of The Oldie, who's reading his diary. Here's Harry Mount.
2: Barry Humphreys would have been 90 on the 17th of February. To commemorate his life, Radio 4 is broadcasting Barry Humphreys gloriously uncut that evening. For the programme, I recalled the joy of talking to Barry about the column he wrote for the oldie. What a delight, too, it was to hear from the great diplomat, Sir Les Patterson, on everything from Australian politics to the history of lesbianism. A lot of high-achieving sheilas, like Cleopatra, Mary Queen of Scots, Baudissier, Dusty Springfield and Florence Nightingale, all paddled the pink canoe at some stage of the game. One day he asked my colleague Penny about me. On hearing I wasn't married, he said, deadpan, is he a vagina decliner? Barry had immaculate manners and so asked Penny not to pass on the question. She did, though, and it was the funniest thing I've ever heard. The cartoonist Nick Garland, a spectator regular, co-created legendary Australian Barry McKenzie with Barry. Nick's also on the Radio 4 programme. He told me of an extraordinary dinner party held at Peter Cook's house in 1964. Nick, Barry, Peter and John and Cynthia Lennon were there. They started to play a game where they were all excessively polite to each other. Oh, I understand you're a famous singer in a very popular group, Barry said to Lennon. Oh, and I understand you're an extremely funny Australian, Lennon responded. And then suddenly the game turned nasty as their latent competitiveness emerged and they started trading insults at lightning speed. I thought one of them might hit somebody, said Nick. We had our baby Emily there in a bassinet. I instinctively moved between her and the three men. Just as it was getting out of hand, Cynthia Lennon shouted, Stop it, John. They immediately switched back to polite chit-chat as if nothing had happened. John Lennon was the equal of Barry and Peter, says Nick. Barry was so quick that he liked to wrong-foot people, embarrass them, and leave them slightly puzzled. But you could see he wouldn't mess around with someone as outstanding and gifted as John Lennon. There was no way he could have embarrassed him or he would have come back at Barry. Oh, to have been there. As an observer, not as a combatant in that scary battle between comic geniuses to the Anthony Pohl Society annual talk at the Travelers Club. Hilary Sperling, Pole's biographer and a former spectator, literary editor, gave the address. I'm glad it was largely about the considerable influence Violet Pohl, my dear great-aunt, had on Pohl's masterpiece, A Dance to the Music of Time. A member of the audience had to leave early. Making a quiet exit, she tiptoed towards the vast double doors and couldn't get out. Confusingly, for a club built in 1832, there were sliding doors. The poor lady desperately tried to push and pull the handle in silence, a Marcel Moiseau masterclass in miming frustration that transfixed the audience. Anthony Pohl, a Traveller's member, would have appreciated the scene. A running joke among society members is that you can call anything unusual very Poellian. Even if there's no similar incidents in dance, its 12 volumes somehow capture anything coincidental or slightly farcical in everyday life. A very Poelian evening. I'm being driven mad by BBC News 24. At the top of the hour and on the half hour, the fillers are growing longer. They're essentially preening adverts for the BBC. First, Laura Koonsberg shows off about her show newscast. Then Zainab Badawi promotes Take Me to the Opera. Then comes John Simpson striding through the BBC newsroom, banging on about unspun world. These three take up two minutes of airtime and their clips are repeated ad nauseam. Half an hour later, there are more fillers, with video of correspondence silently showing off before the revolving globe counts down to the hour. Another minute wasted. The pips on the radio, which have just celebrated their centenary, last only six seconds as they count down to the hour. Why can't BBC New TV News emulate BBC Radio News and broadcast more, um, news rather than boringly blow its own trumpet? Ah! News reaches me of an old friend who has me to stay at her lovely Norfolk house. I've heard she marks thank-you letters out of ten for length and speed of reply. I used to send postcards the day after I got back from her house. But she's angry, I learn, at me writing only a few sentences. My next thank you letter, if she asks me again, will be the length of a small novel.
1: That was Harry Mount. And now we'll hear from Lara Prindergast, who's The Spectator's executive editor, on her beauty tips for blokes.
3: British men are getting into beauty. Now it's men's turn to hog the bathroom, reports the Times, as spending increases 77% year on year. Beauty industry types argue that all men should want to look more groomed, even Anglo-Saxons. What's wrong with some light fluffing up here? A bit of patching up there. It's a lucrative business and celebrities are, of course, cashing in. Harry Styles flogs nail varnish, Idris Elba's skincare line, Sabul is powered by modern science. Even Richard E. Grant has a range of smellies. An exploration of his lifelong love affair with scent. It's a long way from Withnell scrubbing essence of petunia into his boots to cover up the odour of lighter fluid-induced vomit. Times change, and so must we. But the impression I get is that some men, coming to all these elixirs a bit later in life than most women, could do with a few pointers. It is easy to veer from the fresh faced into the peculiar. Hair A note on hair dye. It can be obvious when a man starts dyeing his hair using equipment bought in a chemist. It comes out a flat uniform colour which looks unconvincing. The trick, as most women know, is to ask a hairdresser for highlights which hide the grey much better. The effect should be more Monet landscape than Eve Klein monochrome. It is worth noting, too, that grey hair on men looks dignified. If your hair is falling out, adverts on the London Underground insist a trip to Harley Street or even Turkey is the best course of action, to have hair harvested from other parts of the body and replanted into the scalp. I'm struck by how frequently I hear men, even young men, talking about following in Wayne Rooney's path. Hair implants may result in thicker hair, but be prepared to answer questions about the miracle. Teeth Whitening treatments are commonplace, as are invisible braces. Neither are particularly perilous from an aesthetic point of view. There is only so much to be done with what nature provides. More disturbing is the fashion for filing teeth down into vampiric points, after which crowns are attached. Again, turkey has somehow cornered the market for this treatment, which is known as turkey teeth. When drastically renovating a smile, pick the colour of the false teeth carefully. White is not just white, it comes in multiple shades. If teeth look milkier than a baby's first milks, they will alarm people. Pick up a faro and ball chart for reference. Teeth naturally tend more towards clunch. Than all white. Bear this in mind. Nails. Learn how to look after your nails at home. Trim and file. The nail salon is a sacred, women only space. Do not enter it. It is unnerving to encounter a man in a salon, aside from the friendly South Asian men who often work there. Women do not visit barber shops out of a similar sense of propriety. Skin. It is fine to cover one's skin in unctions. The truth is that they will not do much to change one's appearance, but might help lift the spirits. Skin will feel plumper, but the effect will be fleeting. What will change a person's appearance more permanently is a tweakment. Botox, fillers, facelifts, etc. A word of warning here. The promise is that these procedures turn back time. The reality is that when a middle-aged man pumps his weathered face full of filler, it doesn't make him look 21 again. Instead, rubberized, over-inflated light bulb cheeks simply give the impression of a midlife crisis well underway. Makeup. The beauty industry is trying to convince men it is normal to wear makeup. For men, makeup is increasingly becoming one of the most powerful tools for bold self-expression, says Vogue. Approach makeup with caution. It is usually obvious when men wear makeup, and while there is nothing wrong with it, it is certainly a look. Steer clear of foundation, which is skin coloured gloop promising to make your face look radiant. It is already hard enough to get right on a face that isn't peppered with stubble. Donald Trump is not scared by foundation, his orange face has become a powerful tool for bold self expression. Tanning. Neither is the former president shy when it comes to using fake tan. Its use need not be quite as bombastic as his. It can be done with some subtlety. Remember, fake tan has a distinct biscuity smell that most women will be able to identify immediately. Scent Speaking of smell, just as it is offensive when a woman marinates herself in enough scent to suffocate a room, the same is true for men. Do not dismiss the smell of soap, which is more enticing than 98% of aftershaves and has not yet, as far as I'm aware, been bottled by any of the big perfumiers. Body hair Men have removed their hair for almost as long as women have. In many ways, they are better versed in the subject. That said, overly enthusiastic depilation can be startling when encountered in close quarters. A man I went to university with was known for removing all his body hair using hair removal cream. This is not the sort of reputation you want following you around in life. A little hair is no bad thing. Sun cream. If there is only one beauty tip you take away from this column, which I hope has been helpful, it should be this. Wear sun cream. The sun is the real enemy, followed closely by the beauty industry. That was Lara
1: Prendergast. Next, we'll hear from Owen Matthews, who writes from Kiev, about how Ukrainian spirits remain unbroken.
0: Rome and Kiev have one thing in common, the distinctive whine of motor scooter engines in the night. The difference is that in Kiev, the high, vesper-like noise does not rise from the streets, but drifts down from the, among snow-laden clouds. It's the unmistakable sound made by Iranian-designed Shahed-136 suicide drones, Essentially, modern-day doodlebugs armed with warheads big enough to collapse a medium-sized building. Kievans nickname these skyborne menaces mopeds. Shahids are slow-moving, low altitude and easy to spot, so Russia fires them after dark. With a great deal of noise and spectacular flashes in the night sky, Ukrainian anti-aircraft and patriot missile batteries usually blow most of them out of the sky before they come in. But Patriot ammo is expensive and becoming increasingly scarce as Kiev waits out the grim drama of a minority of Republicans continuing to block continued military aid in Washington. At the beginning of this latest winter of bombardments, Ukraine's air defences were downing more than 90% of the missiles and drones. Now, though exact figures are classified, the hit rate has palpably reduced. Last week, more than a dozen people were killed in their beds in Kiev and residential buildings reduced to flames and rubble. Unlike last winter, when the Russians attempted to destroy Ukraine's electricity infrastructure with precise attacks, the targets this year appeared to be no more specific than the civilian inhabited centers of major cities. Such a shift in strategy is almost as old as air war itself. During the Second World War, the US Air Force advocated precision daytime bombing. The less well-equipped Royal Air Force favored nighttime carpet bombing, most famously of Dresden. In March 1945, frustrated with his bombers' inability to hit munitions factories in Japan, General Curtis LeMay abandoned his old precision strategy and shifted to low-level carpet bombing with napalm incendiaries. By late summer, LeMay's B-29 superfortresses had burned out more than 60 Japanese cities. Vladimir Putin's generals seem to have made a similar calculation. Their answer to Ukraine's improved air defences has been to ramp up the scale of missile and drone attacks and abandon all pretense of targeting infrastructure. If Putin's intention is to break Ukrainian spirit by bombing them into submission, it's not working any better than Hitler's blitz of London or Coventry, Arthur Bomber Harris's destruction of Dresden, or LeMay's burning of Tokyo. The occasional air raid notwithstanding, Kiev remains a lively, fun and defiant city. With cheerful blitz spirit, Elon A cocktail bar near the Bessarabian market advertised cocktails, "quotes as powerful as a bomb. The newest hipster-designed Ukrainian Armed Forces recruitment posters rip off the Lord of the Rings, depicting a handsome soldier bayoneting a group of screaming orcs. The anonymous author of the Nikolaevsky Vanyok Telegram channel reposts the latest data from the Ministry of Defense air raid warning site in slangy style. Quote, greetings, Kiev kids, a gang of mopeds, Shahed drones, heading your way from the northeasterly direction. When the banshee wail of air-raid sirens blares out over the city, customers in bars and cafes turn to their phone screens to check what Vanyork has to say. If it's drones, people assume they'll be shot down by Kiev's air defences and ignore the sirens. If Russian MiGs are spotted, that means hypersonic Kinjal missiles could be on their way. According to local law, these hit their targets in 90 seconds, making it already too late to run. Recommended action in both cases, stay put and finish your drink. By God, does the hatred of Russia run deep. After an hour of conversation, in fluent Russian. With a brave and thoughtful journalistic colleague whose anti-corruption investigations got the defense minister of Ukraine sacked over the summer, I asked if he follows the Russian media. ''Definitely not,'' he replies. ''The only good Russian is a dead Russian.'' He takes a moment, then corrects himself. ''What I mean is there are probably still good Russians, ''but right now I don't want to work out who is good and who is bad. ''I don't want Russia in my head in any way.'' ''I ask about the million-odd Russians who have fled the Putin regime.'' ''They didn't stand and fight for their freedom,'' he answers, recalling the events of 2014. ''We did.'' We stood for 94 days on the Maidan against the government. We built barricades. 150 of us got shot and we won. But those Russians, they just ran away. People are exhausted by the war. Many men are nervous about being drafted in President Volodymyr Zelensky's new quest to find half a million more soldiers to replace those who have been fighting for two years. More and more medical exemptions are being scrapped, including tuberculosis and heart disease. Several radically unmilitary acquaintances, overweight and heavy-drinking artists and designers in their 50s, have received call-up papers. Even if the US Congress eventually releases another tranche of military aid, Ukraine is running low on the one resource that it will truly be impossible to replace, its soldiers. But there is no sign that Ukrainian spirit is anything close to broken. Quite the opposite. The main good news is that my friends share a daily reports of Ukrainian drone strikes deep inside Russia, blowing up oil refineries and arms factories and petrol depots with vast fireballs far more dramatic than anything Russia is managing to inflict on Kiev. So Putin, do your worst. Kiev can take it.
1: That was O Matthews, And next, we'll hear from Katrina Olding, who is the widow of Jeremy Clark, our low-life columnist. And she talks about being able to choose how one dies. In
4: 1984, I was a third-year student nurse. The last secondment before my final exam was gynaecology. The wards were housed several miles away from the friends and familiar faces of the Edwardian General Hospital, where my training was based. It was an unfriendly place. The staff had little time for outsiders and none for this skinny, ginger, idealistic student nurse. In those days, before accurate scanning equipment was widely available, diagnosis of a variant in uterine cancer was difficult and treatments much less effective than they are now. The outlook for many was bleak. Some of the patients on the ward where I worked were a deep ochre colour from jaundice and so emaciated it was a miracle their skeletal legs could carry them. One woman habitually changed into a frilly yellow baby doll nighty before visiting time, which, along with her heavy makeup, amplified the tragedy of her situation. Three weeks into my stint, I came back, after a couple of days off duty, to a scene which has haunted me since. A smell, worse even than gas gangrene, permeated not only the ward, but the entire floor of the hospital. In a single room near the ward entrance lay the source, the woman with the yellow nightdress. Sister warned me that the woman, who was still conscious, was suffering horribly. Months before, the consultant, a kindly man in his 50s, promised the woman he wouldn't let this happen, but it was the weekend and, with no mobile phones, he couldn't be reached. The junior doctor on call was powerless to help. Only the consultant in charge could prescribe what was required. Sister asked me and an auxiliary nurse to attend to the woman. I held my breath, composed my face concentrated on not retching, and opened the door. The woman was now even thinner, just skin-covering bones. Wide-eyed, gasping and swallowing, she grabbed my wrist and tried to speak. Cancer had perforated her small bowel and chest. Fecal fluid trickled from her mouth. Her chest gurgled. She was drowning. We did our best, but it was an hour at least before the consultant's wife tracked her husband down on the golf course. Later, on my way home, I walked along the hospital drive, by chance, following the hearse, a different person to the one who'd arrived nine hours before. That evening, over gin and tonics with a school friend who was halfway through her nursing training, tears turned to anger. Is this the best we can do? I said, lighting another silk cut. With the selfishness of youth, we agree that if anything happened to either of us, the other would take away the pillows in the hope of hastening pneumonia. I repeated the question. But that was almost 40 years ago, before hospice care, and irrelevant to today's discussion around assisted dying, you might think. Except the same friend witnessed the following scenario in a hospice last year when she was visiting a young relative. The criteria for the use of palliative sedation in terminally ill or dying patients is intractable suffering. Palliative sedation isn't technically speaking euthanasia. The aim is to ease suffering although the drugs used may cause suppression of the respiratory system and death to come sooner. Whether or not it is euthanasia seems, like so many polarised debates, a question of semantics, as death usually occurs within an hour and three days of commencement. The patient was unconscious and, without question, dying. The family were present and shocked at what they saw unfolding before them, the details of which are too recent and harrowing to relate. My friend alerted the nurse in charge who came to see the patient. She agreed that palliative sedation was required, but said there was no doctor on site and nothing could be done until he got back. Defeated, the nurse hid her face in her hands. There was nothing she could do within the current protocol. The laws and guidelines which control end-of-life care are complex, taking into account ethical, legal and medical issues. Doctors, sensitive to the law and public anxiety surrounding assisted dying, are quick to reassure relatives that palliative sedation isn't euthanasia. One of the difficulties doctors face is that liver metabolism can vary enormously from individual to individual due to a number of factors, one of which is genetic. The same dose of morphine or oxycodone could potentially sedate and stop respiration in patient A, but in patient B, who has rapid liver metabolism, barely register. When my husband, Jeremy Clark, was dying last May, the palliative team couldn't control his pain, even with the largest doses of oxycodone any of them had ever witnessed. The consultant had never seen anything like it and asked about his drug and alcohol intake. The former, party drugs when he could afford them, would have had little effect, I was told, but his legendary capacity for alcohol shed light on the problem. For those suffering from degenerative life-limiting conditions and their families, assisted dying is a heartbreaking issue. For patients, doctors and those seeking to change legislation, the ethical, political, medical and legal debate seems endless. Both the BMA and the Royal College of Surgeons have taken a neutral stance. While this debate rages on, how could we improve end-of-life care? Separate it within legislation and our minds from the discussions surrounding assisted dying months before expected death, perhaps. The anxiety, sadness and depression of the final months of life could be alleviated by a more imaginative tailored use of pharmaceuticals. I remember Brompton's cocktail being used in the early 1980s. Would you like your medication? Morphine and cocaine. In a sherry, brandy or whiskey base, sister would ask in advance before relaying the information to the pharmacist. More too could be done to improve the efficacy of palliative sedation in hospices and homes. Where doctors are temporarily unavailable, prescribing could incorporate a greater level of flexibility with clear guidelines for nurses to follow. Hospices are funded in the main by charitable donations. Could these funds be raised more efficiently? Could this funding and the government's contribution be spent less on administration and more on care? End-of-life care will affect us all, directly or indirectly. We shouldn't flinch, but do our collective utmost to improve it for everyone. Patients, relatives, staff and the general public to minimise avoidable suffering and anxiety. If sister ever asked me, I'd like my medication in a large glass of old Pulteney.
1: That was Katrina Olding. And finally, Jeremy Hildreth, a spectator contributor, writes this week's notes on Napoleon's coffee.
5: Michel duncan Martineau, St. Helena's French honorary consul, wants to set the record straight. Contrary to popular belief, he tells me, Napoleon wasn't exiled to St. Helena for life. In a highly idiosyncratic sentencing, drafted by the Russians and ratified by the other powers involved, Napoleon's banishment was to last, quote, until his deadly fame ends, close quote. While Napoleon was living there from 1815 until his death in 1821, his remains being returned to France in 1840, he was essentially confined to an estate named Longwood House, which sits at a fairly high elevation where the weather is often chilly and misty. There, Napoleon entertained visitors "'gardened extensively and dictated the best-selling book of the 19th century, "'The Memorial of St. Helena, to Emmanuel de Cases. "'Napoleon quarreled ceaselessly with his jailer, Governor Hudson Lowe, "'and complained endlessly about his conditions. "'Island lore has it that one of his consolations in exile was the delicious coffee, "'but Michel showed me the text of a letter written by Governor Lowe, "'who refused to mention the irksome Bonaparte by name, to the governor of Mauritius, requisitioning, quote, a further proportion of the very best coffee for the remarkable personage who is under my custody, close quote. It's dated March 1817, so it's possible Napoleon did enjoy St. Helena coffee for his first two years of being banged up till he got hold of something he preferred. Whether Napoleon loved or loathed it, St. Helena coffee is celebrated and rare. The island produces perhaps 6,000 kilograms a year, a mere five hundredth of world leader Brazil's output, and therefore it's among the costliest around. 70 quid buys you all of 100 grams at Fortnum & Mason, but in St. Helena, the same amount of whole roasted beans sells for 10 pounds, so I acquired a few pouches to play with from four different plantations. One of the problems with St. Helena coffee is that there's no standardized way of processing it from bean to beverage. Nothing except the hulling, which is conducted at a communal facility, is consistent across the island's producers, and the final results vary magnificently from cup to cup. When I make one brand in a cafetiere, the flavor is muddled and bland, but when another is done in a stovetop espresso maker, a pleasant potion emerges with a mild cinnamon-nutmeg thing going on in the background of the thin, satisfyingly clear, golden-brown concoction. What St. Helena coffee has above all is the power of suggestion. When I sip it, I believe I'm tasting original green-tipped bourbon Arabica coffee encountered in Yemen in 1732 by the East India Company, who brought it to St. Helena, where it hasn't changed in three centuries. St. Helena's coffee plants are genetic antiques. Think of eating a wild pear before generations of crossbreeding created the pear you can get in the shops now. That, to me, is St. Helena's coffee specialness. I can't recommend that you should pay an exorbitant price for it, but drop by and I'll brew a cup of history.
1: That was Jeremy Hildreth. And that's it for this week. If you like these articles from the magazine, do pick up an issue of The Spectator, where there are more brilliant articles in this week's mag. I'm Cindy Yu and do join Spectator Out Loud again next week.